getting into a little bit of wineskin theology, and you'll see why that is as we get into the text. There's a famous Italian astronomer, Galileo Galilei, known for inventing the telescope, uh, the Galilean thermometer. You know, you can still see them at Costco. Those are the big tubes with the little floaty things inside of them. And among other things, he lived from 1546 to 1642. He attended college in Pisa, where the Leaning Tower of Pisa is. And yet uh, he was going there to study medicine and he had to drop out because he didn't have enough money to continue in college Nevertheless, he continued to study mathematics, which was his field of passion. And in 1589, at the age of 25, he was appointed to the prestigious chair of the mathematics department at Pisa University. He was especially fascinated with the mathematics involved with falling and moving objects. And he would throw things off the Leaning Tower of Pisa just to to calculate and make calculations. He also was very interested in the motion of pendulums and you know when you think about a pendulum they just go back and forth but he was really fascinated about that and he developed a lot of mathematical theories that advanced uh, physics and math in 1609 after inventing the telescope Galileo began to see things in space that no one had ever seen before for instance they used to think the the moon was smooth and uh, when he developed his telescope of course he discovered it was all full of craters and and valleys and mountainous areas and his discoveries shook the world he also discovered that jupiter actually had four moons around it which no one ever knew before these discoveries of course launched him into fame and soon he became uh, chief mathematician to the grand duke of tuscany in florentine And what's interesting is Galileo began to realize that the works and studies of another man, Copernicus, were true. And Copernicus had this really bizarre view that the planets evolved around the sun. And no one believed that. Everybody knew that everything evolved around the earth. But... He believed, because mathematically it just worked out better, that the planets were in orbit around the sun. Well, this didn't sit well with the Roman Catholic Church and Roberto... Bellarmino um, was a Catholic cardinal and he put an injunction that no one could hold to or support or be in favor of Copernicus's theory because everybody knew it was heresy. Well... Galileo, after he studied, the more he studied, the more he thought, you know, Copernicus was right. Most of the Roman Catholic scholars, though, could not and would not bring themselves to change their view. It's what they were used to. Everything evolved around the earth and they just weren't going to change. And no matter how much Galileo tried, they wouldn't be convinced. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't move their view. And so they began to persecute him. They persecuted him and started uh, saying, uh, no, you're teaching heresy and, you know, witchcraft. And and they quoted him Acts 113. uh, Why are you men of Galilee standing here looking up into the sky as proof that he shouldn't study astronomy? And so it was pretty desperate. In 1632, he published a work favoring Copernicus's view, which had become his own and also the views of Protestant astronomer uh, Johannes Kepler. Kepler 
took Copernicus's view that the planets evolved around the sun. And he said, not only do they evolve around the sun, but they evolve around the sun in a elliptical pattern, which is true. We know that today. And he figured that out. And so he published this work and it frosted the church. And so they had an inquisition. They called him to Rome and they made him get down and recant his theories and put him under house arrest until the day he died. The works of Copernicus, Kepler, and um, Galileo were put on the church's list of prohibited books until 1835. And it wasn't until 1992 that the church finally said we were wrong. And you might think to yourself, man, what a bunch of stubborn boneheads. How could people be so stubborn? Well, I tell you, there's people like that every day in the church. People who are stubborn. They're so stubborn, they won't change no matter what. It doesn't matter what you tell them. It doesn't matter how you try and convince them. They just will not change. And in our text this morning, Jesus and his disciples encounter This very thing. Now, if you remember, Jesus last week was at Matthew's house having a big feast. Matthew had just repented of his life as a tax gatherer, which was a very, you know, wicked, selfish and wealthy profession. And he repented of that and he wanted to have a feast to honor Jesus. The problem is, is his only friends were prostitutes and tax gatherers and other sinners, socially unacceptable people. And so he invites Jesus to his house to have this feast. And while they're at his that house and they're having this feast and they're enjoying themselves the pharisees and the disciples of john the baptist we learn from the text in matthew and mark are outside fuming because look at them they're in they're in there eating with with sinners if you can believe that i mean can you eat with anybody else <laughs> anyways they thought they were righteous and that and that they, they could, you know, actually just eat with other righteous people. Of course, they were wrong. And so last week we learned that when they finally left Matthew's house, they kind of pounced on uh, the disciples and said, Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus came to their rescue and said, Listen, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, which is pretty clear. You know, well, people don't go to the doctor and those who don't sin don't need salvation from sin. Well, this didn't satisfy them. And so they began to make a statement. They didn't really ask a question. They just kind of made this general comment, which was kind of very accusatory in nature, which led to Jesus then giving them four different illustrations and address four different issues of their heart, four different attitudes that they needed to learn to correct and we need to learn to correct. And so that's what we're going to learn from Luke 5. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke 5, verse 33, and follow along as I read. This is right after they asked the first question. Jesus gives them the answer. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. And the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. 
And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Now, the overarching issue here, which is pretty clear, is they don't want to change. They don't want to change. Jesus is doing things differently, and they don't like it. They don't like it. He's doing things differently, and they don't want to change. You see, what happened is, and what you need to understand here, is that they, the rabbis, had invented some regulations, lots of regulations, added them to the law of Moses. And one of the regulations they invented is on every Monday and every Thursday, you were supposed to fast. Now, that's what all the really godly people did. And they got that from the myth that Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments on a Thursday, and he came down on a Monday. So they fasted. Of course, they didn't know that. This was all invented. And so they were having this problem because Jesus and his disciples were not conforming to the man-made traditions that they observed. And even John the Baptist's disciples, who later on get their act together, of course, even they are miffed. Because, you know, they're standing out there having, you know, it's on a Monday or a Thursday and they're out there in the hot sun with their stomachs growling and they're, you know, kind of, you know, trying to be pious and mournful. And what's happening is, is there's they look over there and they're inside of Matthew's house is Jesus and the disciples laughing, eating, drinking. And they're saying, hey, 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 what are you doing? And see, this is what's behind it all. This is what's driving the text. Over time, it became the standard thing that godly people fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And that's what John the Baptist's disciples did. They kind of followed John were, you know, dying themselves of pleasures. You know, John, of course, grew up in the wilderness and ate locusts and wore coarse clothes and wild honey. I mean, he was, you know, a pretty base, basic guy, didn't have any pleasures and denied himself and so his disciples are kind of that way and they're looking at jesus and his disciples surely this this can't be the, the messiah i mean look how ungodly he is he's not holding to our traditions how irreverent are you sure this is the messiah and see they're having a problem they are having a problem and what you need to realize is that these men as they come to confront jesus and say you know why aren't you fasting that Jesus is going to try and fix their attitudes with four different illustrations, each directed at a different thing. Now, what you need to understand, though, is this. You need to understand that they were legalists. And legalism comes in three different ways. And all these people here could tell you what they are, but we won't quiz them right now. They were here at the first service. Legalism comes in... Three different ways. The first way is you think that by your good works, you can earn your way to heaven. You think that by being good and being righteous, you can somehow find favor with God, that your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. And if you do enough good things, God will say, hey, you're a good person. I'm going to let you into heaven. That's one kind of legalism. Another kind of legalism, which is very common in a lot of churches today, is obeying God's word 
out of just mere habit and ritual and not from the heart. And this is very common. You know, you come into church, you've got your Bible, you sit down in the pew, you stand up and sing your, your three songs. The words come out. You aren't even thinking about God. You're thinking of your pot roast and you're thinking of shopping later and, you know, what you're going to do after in the afternoon, you know, the mouth. And you're just, you're just going. It's all letter, but there's no spirit. It's all external, but there's no heart. That's another form of legalism. There's a third kind, and that is when you develop convictions, traditions, things Apart from the scriptures that aren't mandated in the word of God. And you come to believe that these things have equal authority to the word of God. And you say, well, listen, you know, I don't eat meat. And if you eat meat, you're sinning. See, I fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And if you don't fast on Mondays and Thursdays, you are sinning and you're not as godly as me. That's legalism. It's elevating the man-made traditions to the same authority as the word of God. And that's exactly what's going on here. So Jesus begins to just drill into them. And he starts by giving each of these little pictures, these little illustrations. Each one kind of addresses a certain aspect of those who don't want to change. The first is this. Don't pout when you should celebrate. We see this in verse 33 through 35. Here they all are. They're all grumpy. They see Jesus and he's been eating and feasting with tax gatherers and sinners on a Monday or a Thursday. Verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. And the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. What is wrong with you? In other words, you know, translate this. Why are you and your disciples so ungodly that you don't hold to the fast? The traditions of the elders. Why are you challenging our traditions by failing to observe them and being so irreverent? And that's exactly what they're saying. Look at verse 34. And Jesus says to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? And what you need to understand here is a little bit of background. Whenever you got married in that culture, you would get married and you wouldn't go on a honeymoon. You just party down for a week. You'd have a celebration. Your relatives would come over. You'd just kind of have this sustained party all day long, late into the night, day after day. For a whole week, you'd have this party time. And what Jesus is doing here is he's getting a little witty because he knows the traditions. And so he's going to use their own man-made traditions against them because the, they had also formed this tradition that, and these people all know what it is, um, that if you were to... Have a a wedding feast. You didn't have to observe any laws or ordinances that would lessen your joy during that time. And so you didn't have to fast and mourn, which is what was always brought along by fasting, mourning, sackcloth and ashes. And so Jesus says, listen, you're getting married. You're having a big party. And you don't tell everybody, hey, now that we're all happy, let's mourn. That just doesn't work. And so Jesus says, you can't, you can't expect the wedding party to be moping around during the time of celebration. And the whole purpose here is this. He is the bridegroom and his disciples are the attendants of the bridegroom. And he's the Messiah, God incarnate, come to earth. It's time to rejoice. It's time to be happy. 
But he does go on to say, if you look at verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And of course, Jesus was taken away. He was crucified. And yes, they did have time to mourn and fast. But for how long? Three days because he rose from the the grave. And that was a great time of rejoicing. And then he said, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And people, we don't have to mourn anymore about Jesus being dead because he's not. He's risen from the dead. And that is why as Christians, we have continual reason to rejoice and be glad because God has raised Christ from the dead. And if there's anybody in the face of the planet that has a reason to be glad, it's Christians. And yet some Christians walk around Oh, morning, serious. I worship in the solemn assembly. <laughs> and they go around the church, the grumpy Gestapo. <laughs> you, you can't. We're having fun in here. Don't you know this is a church? And, and they just kind of have this frumpy, grumpy, I was weaned on a dill pickle <laughs> type of approach. To life. And you know what? They just sour other people. And here these people are. They're out there fasting. These Pharisees and John's. And they're talking to each other and going, yeah, look at them come out of there. Yeah, we're going to talk to them. He's like, you know, how ungodly. And they're all kind of, you know, having this big complaint party. How come you guys aren't fasting and mourning like us? We're godly. Well, Jesus addresses their sour attitude here. They thought Jesus and the disciples should have been mourning and fasting. But Jesus says, no. Your own traditions say no. Have you forgotten? You're to rejoice when the Messiah comes. And guess what? I'm the guy. It's time to be rejoicing. But you know what? Even when you look at the Old Testament law, even when you look at Deuteronomy, which, you know, a lot of people haven't studied it think, oh, that sounds very boring. I don't know what's in that book, but just the name sounds scary. Um, what is that in that book? Even in, in the law of Moses, God commanded them to party, to have feasts, to rejoice in the Lord. Stop working, get together and have mandatory parties. That's what the people of God are to do, to rejoice in the Lord. When you read in Deuteronomy 12, 7, it says rejoice in all of your undertakings. In Deuteronomy 12, 12, rejoice before the Lord. In 14, 26, rejoice when you eat. In Deuteronomy 26, 11, rejoice in all the good that the Lord has done from you. You read Proverbs, you read Psalms, you do a search on the word rejoice and be glad and praise. I mean, there's just hundreds of them in there. God's people need to be happy because out of all the people on the face of the earth, man, we have a savior who saves, who changes, who is risen from the dead. And when you walk around church, like, you know, what does that tell the world? Being a Christian is a bummer. (laughs) I mean, hey, you know, you can just imagine witnessing. Of course, those people never witness to anybody. How would you like to be like me? There's an old proverb that says this. It describes two men in prison. It goes like this. Two men stand looking out through the bars. One sees the mud, the other the stars. Which one are you? Are you one of these weaned on a dill pickle people? 
you know, mud people, glasses half empty people. It's always about what you don't have and what you're not getting. Well, listen, it's not about you. You are created to give glory to God. It's not about what you want. It's about what God wants. And you know what? If you're a Christian, God is working all things out for your good. So quit fussing. You could be an unbeliever and God is working out everything for your bad. Several years ago, I was helping a contractor hang some drywall in a church building. And we were laughing and we were joking. We were having competitions to see who could put the sheetrock screws in the fastest. And there was this guy doing the air conditioning in the building. He was a Mormon. And he thought we were drinking. Because we were laughing so much. And he told the electrician, who was also a Christian, who went to our church, are those guys drinking? And the electrician says, no. You know, that's the pastor of our church. (laughs) They're just having fun. And you know what? He was able to witness the guy right then and say, you know, when you know Christ, man, you have so much to rejoice about that even, you know, sheetrock's fun. Um, It's great. There's a lot of great things to rejoice in. And so if you look at your life and you realize, hey, you know, I'm just grumpy. I don't have any joy. I don't have any gladness. You just need to confess your sin. Lesson to learn. Don't pout when you should be rejoicing. Secondly, don't think you can improve your man-made religion by adding Christianity to it. Look at verse 36. And he was also telling them a parable. The word parable here can just mean figure of speech or an illustration. Um, it's not a formal parable, which Jesus tells later on to hide truth from people. He's just given an illustration. Verse 36. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, the... Uh, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. No kidding. You know, you've got this pair of pants and they're old and they're worn out. They got a hole in the knee. And so you buy a brand new pair. And then what you do is you tear a chunk out of that. And then you put it on your old pair, make the old pair look uglier and ruin the new pair. I mean, it's pretty basic what Jesus is saying. But we all know that Jesus is not trying to give us a letting on clothing. Or patching clothes. There's a spiritual lesson here. You have to ask yourself, what is the new garment? The new garment is a reference to the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of the new covenant. The old garment is the teachings of the rabbis and the system of Moses that was going to be passing away. Jesus, while on earth, kept the law of Moses perfectly, but he did not keep all the traditions that the Jews added to the law. And they were having a problem with this. The attitude that Jesus is addressing here is they were thinking, well, you know, you need to, um, you know, detach, fix our thing with your new patch. No, 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 no. We're just going to throw away the old pants. We're going to get rid of them. You need to dump them and just accept a brand new system. The law of Christ, the law of love. Don't try and think you can fix. And you know what? There's a lot of people who still do this today in the church. Traditions die hard. Not just Jewish traditions, all kinds of traditions. You know, there's people who are Presbyterians and Methodists and, you know, Baptists or whatever, who you just don't want to get rid of your tradition. We've we've always done it this way. 
So, hey, you know, the Bible says this and the word of God says that. But, you know, hey, you know, you're you're messing with our tradition. Can't you just kind of conform the word of God to fit our man-made religion? No. You you change your traditions to conform to the word of God. And so I ask you this. Are you trying to add Christianity to your man-made traditions? Think about it. You know, you're used to going to church on Sunday. Do you know the Bible doesn't command you to do that? It says to gather regularly and the church did gather on the Sabbath and on Sunday and different other days of the week too. Romans 14, five says one person regards every day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. It's a matter of conscience. Now you can gather on Sunday. It's fine, but don't condemn somebody who you know gets together on Thursday. That's fine too. The Bible doesn't say, for instance, we need to have Sunday school. I'm sorry, it's just not in there. The Bible doesn't say we need to sing old hymns. Sorry. And it doesn't say we need to sing new choruses. Sorry. You know what? The Bible doesn't even say when you gather together for worship, sing this many songs. It just says that Christians need to be singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And what you need to realize is a lot of times we get used to our way, our traditions, what we're used to. And then we condemn other people because they aren't conforming to our way. And you know what? We might need to change. We might need to change. And if you're one of these people, you need to first ask yourself this. Is this issue I'm irritated about founded in the clear teaching and doctrine of the word of God or not? And if it's not, be flexible, be flexible. Secondly, ask yourself this. Is it possible that things might have changed since I was little? (laughs) That maybe some of the traditions I've become very used to that are very familiar to me need to be maybe set aside for new ones. I'm not talking doctrine here. I'm not talking about the word of God. I'm talking about extra things we add to it. Third, remind yourself of this. See if you can follow this logic. This is important. You have these ways that you've done things for a long time as a Christian. Now, follow me. Because of that, that means you've gone to a church for a long time. You've heard a lot of sermons for a long time. You've gone to a lot of Bible studies for a long time. You've read your Bible a lot for a long time and applied it for a long time, which means you're a mature Christian for a long time. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think God would have more godly, mature Christians who know the difference between biblical mandate and personal preference? Give way to those who are immature and don't know that. Or that those who are more mature should require the less mature ones to conform to their personal preferences. We know the answer. If you're more mature in the Lord, you bend because that's what godly people do. And these people were unwilling to bend. Listen, I know you like your old, comfy, worn-out pair of pants, but sometimes you just need to pitch them in the trash and get a new pair. Third, don't think you can fit Christianity into Judaism without causing a disaster. Look at verse 37 and 38. And no one puts new wine. I just stopped there for a second. What's new wine? Uh, basically, there's two different kinds of wine, new and old. Uh, new wine is wine that's still in the process of fermenting. It's bubbling. It's, you know, doing its thing. 
distilling down into non-fermenting old wine. And he says, no one takes this new wine that's still in the process of fermenting and puts it into old wineskins. Now, what you need to understand is this. Back then, they didn't have wine bottles. Don't fall asleep on me. Um, they didn't have wine bottles. They had animals. They had a goat. That was your wine bottle. Okay? You would take the goat. You would skin the goat. And you would skin it in such a way that you cut the hide in as little, as few places as possible. And then you would sew up the feet and sew up everything except for the neck. And you would pour into this new, soft, partially tanned goat skin. You would pour your new wine, your grape juice that's fresh and starting to ferment. You know, you, you would crush the grapes and immediately fermentation would start. I mean, it's not like they had refrigerators and preservatives. It just, you know, it fermented or didn't. So you'd pour it in there and then they would close it up and the skin would actually swell and stretch and accommodate the fermentation process of the wine. Then after a while, it would quit fermenting. The skin would get hard and stiff and then you had old wine in an old wine skin. And Jesus is saying, hey, everybody knows that if you take new wine and put it into old wine skin and you plug it up, it's going to create a wine bomb. <laughs> and it's going to blow wine everywhere. And you're going to lose your wine and you're going to ruin your skin. No, duh. I mean, he didn't say that. In the, it's in the Greek, maybe. Um, <laughs> So what Jesus is confronting here, again, is not how to make wine. Jesus is confronting here the desire that some might have to merge Christianity with Judaism. And there are people who do that today. Just like the Judaizers in the Old Testament or in the New Testament were trying to take Christianity and merge it with the law of Moses. So there are some today, they call themselves Messianic Jews, who try and do the same. That no, 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 you have to keep all the laws and all the festivals and all the regulations and you need to, you know, teach it and we're going to try and merge them together and it just doesn't work. You ruin the law of Moses and you ruin the law of Christ if you do that. And, you know, it happens in other areas, too. We aren't just talking about Judaism here. Sometimes Christians try to merge Christianity with other aberrant things. You have, for instance, the field of psychology, which was developed by God-hating atheists, uh, Freud and others. And those men had premises not based on the scriptures, contrary to the word of God. They didn't understand the nature of man. They didn't understand what man's problem was. They didn't want to understand what man's solution was. And then what they decided to do is, okay, we're going to take this. Some Christians came along and we're going to take the theories of these God. God-hating atheists, and we're going to merge them with Christianity and make something good. No. You both ruin the humanistic writings of Freud, and you ruin Christianity. The same thing can be seen, for instance, in theistic evolution, which is the idea that God kind of got things going and then let things go for millions and billions of years. No. It happened in six literal 24-hour periods. And, you know, people go, well, you know, that's not true. What happened in between the days? There were eons of time. Each one of those days is not really a little 24-hour day, even though it says morning and evening the first day. And, oh, no, it's not not that. It's, It's an eon of time. So when he's giving the Ten Commandments and he's talking about the Sabbath day, he says, for six days the Lord God created the heavens and earth and all they contained and rested on the seventh day, which means, if that's true, that we are to just work for six indefinite periods and eons of millions of years, and then on the seventh eon and millions of years we can finally take a rest see it destroys the meaning of the word of god it destroys the meaning of the word of god 
Jesus talked about Adam and Eve of being literal people. That's not some sort of pious fiction. There was no death and dying before the fall. The fall caused death and dying. But if you have evolution, you have all this death and dying before the fall. And so it just destroys the whole Bible. You can't merge them together. You look at other religions like Mormonism and Jehovah Witness and Christian science where they try and take the works of men and merge them with Christianity. It destroys Christianity. It creates damning doctrines, the doctrines of demons. Thing is, as a Christian, don't try to merge the works of men with Christianity. It doesn't work. Just keep the new wine in the new wineskin. Fourth, Don't be stubborn and refuse to accept Christ and biblical Christianity. Look at verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. Like the Roman Catholic churches in Galileo's time, they refused to accept his correct theories. They weren't even theories. They were just facts that he discovered. They wouldn't have it. And there are some people like that in the church and they call themselves Christians and they come every week. They come every week and they call themselves a Christians and they go through the motions. But inside, they're not letting Jesus have their life. I mean, they're willing to go through the motions. You know, maybe they're willing to go to teen challenge and kind of go through the loops. And, you know, this is good for me. And so I'm willing to tolerate it a little bit. But, you know, when it comes down to it, they don't want Jesus telling them what to do every moment of every day. And this is why Jesus says, listen, I know you're thinking to yourself, this old wine is is good enough. Well, it's not. As a matter of fact, it's turned into poison and it will damn you to hell unless you take the new stuff. Don't let your false religion, your man-made religion, your self-worship, your false profession of faith in Christ damn you to hell because it will. It will. It doesn't matter what other people think. It it matters what God knows about you. Jesus took upon himself your sins so that through faith in him, you might be born again and turned into a new creature. And we've heard testimony of it this morning. And you know what? It's true of every single person here. Anyone who comes to Christ through faith, trusting only in what Jesus did in his blood shed for them, they get A total redo. They become new wine. They become rejoicers. They become people who are totally content with God ruling them their lives. And so as you leave here today, I would ask you this. Are you rejoicing? Are you glad for what Christ has done for you? Are you thinking that you can take the teachings of Christ and add them to your personal religion and somehow make Christianity better? It won't. Do you think that you can fit Christianity into Judaism or some other man-made system and, and, and improve Christianity? It won't work. Are you just stubborn and you just won't give your life to Christ? Well, you need to do it. You need to cry out to God right now for mercy and beg him to save you. And he will. That's what's amazing. He will, even though we're rebels, he still saves us because he loves us. So think about these things the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you just for what we learned in this passage. 
Father, we know your word grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you for that. We thank you it is sufficient both to save us and sanctify us, to make us more into Christ's image. And pray for all these people behind me that each one of them, wherever they're at, would be irresistibly drawn to you and changed and transformed into new trophies of your grace. For those in front of me, I pray, Father, that if they don't know you and they've never repented of their sins, Father, that you would save them now. Make them cry out to you right now where they're sitting for mercy and grace. And may you save them and change them and make them into new creatures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.